Hello, Rachel. Hello, Ryan. How are you doing? Huh? I'm feeling pretty good. How about yourself? Good. Good, you know. Just <laughs> gone through some old stuff. <laughs> just digging through some of my uh, husband's things, deciding what to keep and what to throw away. Is that right, Rachel? But I'm not even dead yet. No, no. Or presumed dead, I'm sorry. We've just hush, been hush. doing a bit of a spring clean around spring the house. Spring clean in autumn, as is traditional here. Uh, yes, we are back. Here to talk about Babylon 5. And I just want to say straight off the bat, we watched this episode and Sheridan says that there are two things that's mattered in his life his wife and his career, and he thought his wife died, so he only had his job. And now that she's alive, everything's turned upside down, and he doesn't give a shit about his fucking job. And I was really satisfied with the line delivery there, but I thought, that's a lie. We all know that there are only two things that have mattered to Sheridan in this show. His his dead wife and his love of oranges. That's what's really mattered here, and I wish that he said that. There's only been two things that's mattered in my life, Ivanova. My wife and my love of oranges. And now my wife could be alive. I have to decide what to do with all these oranges in my bed. Do I throw them out of the bed if she returns? Will she accept the oranges in the bed now? What's going to be the dynamic there? Will Anna be on board for all the pulp? I don't know. Everything's a muck. I was thinking about that. I was just amusing myself with the idea of serious Sheridan in this episode, like very angry Sheridan, also having to micromanage all the oranges that he has in a little pile, or no, little pile, a human-sized pile in his bed next to See, him. Like, I disagree slightly. Yeah? The third thing he loves is laws. He loves making <laughs> Sheridan's laws. Like That's the other thing he loves. I love my wife, oranges, and making law. That wasn't where I was going to go with that. He loves presidential speeches from hundreds of years ago, and he always uses them as a little good luck speech. No. Okay, go on. That he's replaced his wife with oranges. <sighs> Do you think that was a coping mechanism? Do you think your orange love was not before she died? No, I think it escalated. It because escalated. It was, a, it was an in-bedroom parents... kink, and then it became an outer-bedroom kink for everybody to see. Didn't his parents run an orchard? Uh, they had an orange... Uh, they, 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 I think they had a, an orchard, or they had uh, uh, orange blossoms nearby that he loved, and the Technomage gave him a thing. But let's get into the uh, rundown of everything. We're Yum Yum Podcast. I'm Ryan. That's Rachel. We are a Babylon 5 rewatch podcast. So that does mean spoilers. If you have not seen the series before, we say stop now and watch it. Especially when it's in relation to this one. Because this is one of the big lore episodes. One of the big turning points in the story. So ye have been warned. We are also uh, called Yum Yum because of an amazing line of dialogue from Star Trek Discovery. Star Trek Discovery is a show that we have covered in the past and we will at one point again cover it. But it had an, 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 an absolutely mind 
mind-boggling sequence in which uh, all this action is happening, the antagonist is running around murdering people, we have two characters that we barely know anything about running after him, like, why are these two characters that we barely know or barely care about having to sort out the season-long antagonist? One of them asks the other qu- character, hey, do you want to help me murder them? And the character we, who we don't know very well, except for she's incredibly sexy, of course, we do know that, and she has these metal things on her face to emphasize her sexiness, she licks her lips sexily, because that's the character we know, flicks her hair back and said, yum yum, in reply. Is she the type of character we know to say that naturally? No, because we don't know anything about her, but it was such a moment, such a scene, such a sequence, that you and I, Rachel, we were moved We were moved physically. We moved out of our seats. I think I jumped up and screamed when it happened. I think you were thrashing from side to side and holding your hands against your temples going, what was that? What was that? And I said, that is what we're going to name the podcast after in a few years time. We ask another question. We ask a question here that's related to Yum Yum. Who in this episode of Babylon 5, your eyes are darting because you haven't thought about it or you have an answer but you're scared to say it. Who would have said yum yum? Who had YYE yum yum energy? Morden. Mm-hmm. Morden. Wow. I actually have two options and neither of them were Morden. Because Morden is great. Morden always has YYE for me. Like, he's Mm -hmm. a go-to. He's a go-to. He's he's smugness. See, see. Exudes YYE to me. See, see. I wouldn't give him YYE because he had BDE, big dick energy. See, he had more big dick energy than YYE. I have two. One's an obvious choice, and the other one's a little bit of a dark horse. So I'm going to go with the first one being the obvious. Via. Yes. Via. He was my second choice. But then the Dark Horse choice is Zach Allen. Yes. Zach Allen at the whole, I'm earning a bit of money. What do you say? Yum, yum. They're just giving me the dough. I could see Zach saying it in a more nonchalant, show, n- not at all showing it off way, while Via, it would be a little bit of a dig. And I can see Morden saying it for sure, but he is. Like, he, I imagined Via saying it. When he's walking away from mm-hmm. Morden, if Morden was eating, like, mm-hmm. at the little wave and a little yum or, or, yum. Well, when he's forced to sit down to talk to Morden, Morden's drinking his coffee and he just gives it a little sniff and just goes, yum yum. And it just throws Morden off because that's what he does throughout the whole entire scene is just irk Mr. Morden to no end and it's wonderful. But uh, let's... Go! This is a biggie. I've got the DVD description for the episode that we are talking about. Now, of course, Rachel, I'm reading it, but do you want to remind us all what episode it is? You know. Say it for us all. Um, I I first want to say what my phone corrected this to be. Mm-hmm. In the shadow of Zah has fun. Nobody, I mean... You know what? I had a lot of fun, so... But it is, in fact, in the shadow of Zahadoom. I would have liked it if it was in the shadow of Zazu has fun, and I'm like, Zazu from Lion King? He didn't have a lot of fun in that movie. He was he was actually quite depressed a lot. He, he's, his king died, 
and then he was stuck with a sexy, sexy scar. But that's right, episode eight, uh, sorry, episode 16, sorry, uh, in the shadow of Zaha Doom. Is Sheridan above the law? His heart overrides his head when he illegally detains a visitor, Ed Wasser, who may know if Sheridan's wife, Anna, presumed dead on an ill-fated scientific exploration, is still alive. That is the plot. That is it. Rachel, this has Zaha Doom in the title. You saw that on the DVD menu, maybe even in the booklet when we were first watching this together. So... I don't need to say it, but uh, I will anyway. You knew it was going to be a big one. You knew there was going to be some importance here, because Zaha Doom's been referenced a bunch at this point. We know it to be uh, a place... A dangerous place. Oh, you think? Like, Babylon 5's a dangerous place, according to Sinclair. Yeah. It can be a dangerous place, but it's our last best hope for peace. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations... So tell us about what it's been like watching this one. What's What it's been like now or what it was like then? Start with the beginning and work your way up to here. So <laughs> you were born <laughs> and you crawled around for a while and you eventually grew up and whatever. That was like the, the, the static noise until you turned this episode on. Okay. <laughs> well, you would have turned it on. <laughs> you, you, you don't doubt yourself. You were very, you were, okay. People, just to put it in context, I was at that time very much, hey, let's take it a bit slow. Let's watch a couple at a time and just relax. And you were like, let's do four discs a day, motherfucker. <laughs> I want to watch half a season a day. It's only my damn body won't let me watch a whole Five seasons in one go. So give yourself some credit. You were very gung-ho. I was very gung-ho. I just meant in the literal sense that you would have been selecting the episodes because you'd keep track of where we're up to. I do have memories. I'm like, what disc are we up to? What season are we in? I don't know. Okay, okay, (laughs) okay, okay, I guess. I'll take you in for it. Um, <laughs> so that's what I was referring to. <laughs> um, <laughs> the morphing menus are hitting your memory banks right now, and you're having a little giggle. I, I, it is. M- I want to actually say what my history is with this episode. God damn it! Pull the trigger, H. Compose myself, but it's very difficult. And you keep on doing that. Doing what? I'm not doing anything. You can say that because this is audio only. I... It's not fair. People, trust me, I'm just sitting here waiting for my wife, my wife, to answer the question, which is what is your history and relationship with this episode? And I guess you got the case of the giggles because we're talking about a serious episode. And sometimes when we talk about a serious episode, you want to have a little bit of a laugh before you dive into the dead wife issues going on. We've already talked about the dead wife. 
and but we 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 cushioned it with cu- uh, with oranges. So there you go. Okay, I remember being astonished by this episode, and it was just so different than what had come before, but. It fit within the show at the same time because it's just like this is not our usual fare. This is not the usual way that our characters are acting and it doesn't feel like it's a like punch up for the ratings kind of thing. It's just like, no, all of these characters are being themselves in this unusual situation Mm. when they are routinely faced with unusual situations that is a great thing to point out about the one of the many strengths of the episode is the show has meticulously built up all the characters well enough for us to know who they are and for them to just we know how they're going to operate and so putting them in a scenario like this Everybody makes sense, even when the when it's upsetting because they're all they're very much opposed to one another and clashing and butting heads. It all makes sense because we know the characters and we know their motivations so well that it is you can just let them go, and this is what we get. They well and truly feel like they're walking on their own. Mm. It is watching somebody who is her carefully made a beautiful train set with all the little models and all the little intricate little things and the crossing tracks and they and they finally finished it. We've watched them finish it and they press it on and it just and it just goes exactly like you need it to, exactly like they planned it out. And then as this episode is one where I forget it has so many of those true Babylon 5 moments. Mm. And on this watch, I was really appreciating how all of them are from monologues Mm. that different characters have. Like, Franklin gets a few, Sheridan gets one, like... Via. Via. Via is beautiful. I love... Like, that little, like, monologue explanation that Via has of what he wants is something that we refer to in our daily lives. It's great. It's great. At we'll have a whole least, conversation about it, of course. At least once every three months, oh, yeah. we will bring up some reference to that moment. Usually the wave. Usually the wave. I watched this as a teenage boy. So this episode, my reaction to it is something that I don't have as as much, if ever, to television nowadays, and I don't know why that is. I think there's a few contributing factors, but I do wonder if it is because I was a teen boy. But when I saw it and I got the answers to questions, I got Sheridan doing this, Morden being recognized by the main players of the plot was a 
big moment, was big deal for me because he was just off in the corner with Londo and Veer doing shady shit. He had his episode where he went around to all of them and asked them a question, but now he's being recognized. As uh, When I saw this in my adolescence, getting Kosh explaining the stuff, seeing Sheridan flip his lid over this, seeing the Night Watch be set up, my reaction was exhilaration and a fist pump and basically an internal and external fuck yeah. It is that uh, culmination of anticipation finally going somewhere even more so because this season's already had a lot of that with the coming of shadows for instance and here it is again and we're going to get it again and again but I had that absolute high energy reaction to everything that happened here Mm -hmm. I was so thrilled that euphoria Mm -hmm. of being rewarded the way that this episode rewards the Mm. viewers is amazing. It's amazing the way that it rewards you and you are so elated for the answers that you get Mm. and so excited about the questions that it gives you. Yes, and I find myself with a lot of modern shows that I watch or shows that I watch currently as, as an adult and maybe this is a byproduct of how television has changed, how they've manufactured those fuck yeah moments a lot more in shows. Like I always think about how Game of Thrones existed and how there were those watch parties of Game of Thrones where people would go to bars and cheer when watching it. And so that mentality exists in TV far more than it did here or just I have gone to be too analytical of a viewer, but I find myself often at a distance when these type of episodes come about nowadays and I find myself more stroking my chin and going, oh yes, I see what they're doing here. Yes. Or Cynical, maybe perhaps. Not, yeah, or just more internalized. And even with shows I love, like Better Call Soul is a show I love dearly. Rarely have I ever got that level of... I'm more uh, happy, like I'm content in a very... Um, zen-like fashion with a show like that where I'm like, ah, yes, a lovely meal that was. Here, in my younger days, I was like, fuck yes, this is what I wanted! Maybe because also people got to remember I had season one for so long and I was like, please let this be worth it. And this is one of those episodes where it's like, Ryan, it was worth it! It was fucking worth it! And I still have that sensation today. When I watched it today, I was emotionally engaged with it. I was smiling, I was laughing, I was giving little noises of like, fuck yeah, that type of thing, because everything's on point here. The pacing is great, the acting is great, the the tying together of all these storylines from other episodes as well as this one on its own is meticulous and well done. I mean, who is this guy? Why is everyone so interested in him? You will simply have to trust this Captain. If you do not release him quickly, everyone here is in terrible danger. Not until I get some answers, once and for all. I think we should begin at the big things first, because why wait? The law, Rachel. We see the shadows. We see the shadows fully, fully sick, bro. We see them. What was your reaction? What's What was your reaction to this? I was like... Wait, what? Wait, what the fuck? 
That's really cool. And that's still pretty much my journey when I rewatch this. I'm like, yeah, that is this episode. Like, wait, we're getting to see them now. Oh, yeah, that's right. The um, particularly when it's Zach scrolling through the frequencies for the monitors. Yeah, yeah. So you, so you're more buzzed about seeing the full on physical look. Of the shadows, I love. I loved that moment. Mm. Like I, I, I enjoy it when Delenn explains the nature of the war and those sorts of things. Just says he is what the show is. Now. <laughs> yeah, this has been the show. Yes. Hey, here, hey, here audience. It here it is on the platform. You've been waiting for a while. Here's here's what <laughs> we've been planning all along. Here's the show. Are you keen on that? You better be. You better be. If you're not, well, here's a night watch. Maybe you'll like that. I don't know. <laughs> eh? um, but <laughs> I, I like the, I, I like the sort of solidification of the shadows when you know who they are and what they are and what they look like. And I really relish the moment where we finally get to see them. Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't expect an answer uh, when I watched the episode. I knew it was going to be big as Zaha Dim, but I didn't expect, oh, here's what the shadows, here's the shadows, and here's what's going on. We're going to have this war with them. Here's why we can't talk about it. It goes in this kind of cycle we know at this point in time. The Vorlons are related in this manner. Here's your role in it. Here's the explanation about Mr. Morden and where he's from and why he's the way he is. We still don't know the motivations of the Shadows and Vorlons' war. We won't find that out until the end of Season 3, of course. But this was... So much, considering the show, as we've talked about a lot, has been very withholding of that information. Tight-lipped. Tight-lipped. Little squeaks and little slivers about the shadows. You got What you got a lot about the shadows are their actions and Mr. Morden's as a representative, rather than actual concrete, this is what it is. Before you are told. Yes, and so I was uh, bewildered and, 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 and elated at getting an answer because I honestly thought, oh, well, they're going to leave it till the season finale, perhaps, if it was going to be that. Uh, one of the other things, and I'm curious to get your take on this, is we get the whole lore where we get told about the shadows being this first ones and the full ones being the first ones and ancient wars and that have gone on for this and the Minbari were involved and now we're going to be involved what I love about this is we've been we've been having this whole shadows stuff just in and out of the show throughout and I was just so pleased that the reveal is actually something grand and big yeah yeah it feels like it deserves the hype that it's been given in universe it isn't something like what caused the universe to die a little boy screamed really loud one time it isn't small and silly and as abstract as that it is this thing that when you get the answer 
you sit back and go, oh, this makes sense for the themes of the show. This makes sense for what we've been set up in lore and world building. But again, it ties back to thematic stuff where we've been seeing uh, the series deal with the rise and fall of empires and civilizations and dynamics and shifts of power and war being a part of that. And so to be told that the plot of the show is there's these ancient aliens who who were around back in the day, they come out of their cocoons and their corners and their shadows and all these places to cause a bunch of trouble to try and basically what we're pitched at this point remember what we're pitched in season two at this point is most likely they're going to try and take over the universe is the usual kind of road you're led down to believe and that was good enough for me the ancient foe who's slowly building up their forces after having lost the last war ties in very well with all the paranoia and fear and hatred we've seen other races have gone through from the exact same thing with the Nan and Centauri, the Minbari and Earth, correct? Uh, yes. All of those, all of our main hitters are people who were involved in a previous war and now they're gearing up for some other conflict, whether it be more internalized like with Earth and the Minbari or directly external with uh, the Centauri and the Nan, and here we are, the Vorlon's been sitting in the corner being like, oh, don't worry, we're we're, we're part of this thematic thing too, by the way, where we're locked into this war with the shadows. Everybody on the council. Yeah, yeah, Uh, all the non-aligned worlds, a lot of them back back in the day were probably involved, if not as they were involved, because we've been told several times that some of them were, it's great. I love it. I love also it's just like we've been locked into this war that's been going on for 10,000 plus years. And now, you know, you get to be a part of it, too. Don't you feel great? I mean, they do admittedly warn him in very uh, screenwritery ways. You'll never sleep full again. Ooh, <laughs> I'm scared. Ooh. That's uh, a great line to have before an ad break. Oh, what a great line. It's better than it's better than uh hello Keffer and then ad break. Could you imagine that as like an ad break sting saying hello to Keffer? Like oh, he's back. He wasn't. He wasn't in this episode. I just want to clarify that for all the Kef heads out there who are wondering, wait, did we watch the wrong episode? No, no, we watched the correct one. He's not here. We watched one of the episodes where Keffer's not in there. I know it's a shock. Because there's oh so few of those episodes where Kef doesn't appear in season two. But we managed to squeak by and watch one without him. I know we're all crying river. I've got a Valentine's Day card from Kef. He he gave me one. He said, love you, Ryan. And he gave me a picture of himself with some love hearts. And I and I fondle it every night to go to sleep. <sighs> it's getting so a man can't even enjoy a letter from home anymore. You said a little bit ago in one of our episodes that when you watched this, you were very much on board for Kosh, but you didn't know what the fuck was going on with Kosh. Now we know. Yeah. And I still don't know, (laughs) like, in a weird way. Because it's just like, I understand more what role the Vorlons are playing, but I still feel like I don't fully understand the Vorlons as a species. Uh, even after all these rewatches. Yeah. I'm like, I feel like 
there is a part of this that I will never understand. They're all about order. I and maintaining. It's not like I don't get that, Ryan. What what don't you get that they're so sexy? <laughs> Why are they so sexy? I don't know. God made them that way. Ask JMS. Why didn't you make them so sexy, JMS? And he and he'll tweet back at you some random cryptic answer that doesn't actually answer your question, like a Vorlon, and you nod your head, going, "Oh, how clever! How 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 witty you are, JMS." Uh, does the S stand for smart? Oh, brother. Uh, wh- what's confusing about them for you? No, no. It- <laughs> It's the fact that I own. I feel like I know Kosh. Ah, yes. And I know this Kosh as a Vulan. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the nature of their society. Because mm, yeah. we learn that Kosh, this one, is different. Well, he's becoming different. He's becoming different. He's being altered by being in touch with humanity and being removed from the Vorlon territory. Well, what's what's really great here is I what I will say is that's by design in in very many ways. Obviously, cost changing. But what I'm saying about is us not knowing too much about the Vorlon society is, uh, of course, irrelevant, but what is relevant is we learn, and obviously we don't learn in this episode, but both the Shadows and the Vorlons have reached such a high echelon in terms of all of the types of evolution one can have, whether it be tech or social or even religious and so on and so forth, that they've become completely stagnant. There's nowhere to go. So now they've maintained one thing, which is this war. So their society, their 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 society is their ideology, which ties strictly back into this conflict, which we find out becomes a meaningless conflict because either side have forgotten what the whole point of it was. All they know is they just want to be proven right. Right about what? I don't know. I just want to be right. So... That is what I think is really great here is we're we're looking at this when we're initially watching it and going, oh, the cryptic, weird, creepy alien guy is actually this benevolent, wise ally that we're going to be teaming up with to take down the real evil foe. And we think that because Kosh has been on the show, we've seen him a bunch of times, we've had a little bit of familiarity that... And and he's telling us the story, and he's asking, he's saying, "Hey, now come join us to take down the guys we know to be evil." And yet, what I'll, we learn—I'll show you how to fight. Yes, I'll show you how to fight. But what we learn is the Vorlons are evil as well. They're not good. They're bad. They're manipulative. They're abusive, and outright uh, villains at a certain point. And Kosh is the exception to the rule because. He remo- he gets removed from their their isolationism and he engages and interacts with us lower species and actually changes because he sees some values or he picks up some and he's willing to sacrifice and unlike the other Vorlons who will only sacrifice others for their cause. 
And so that's what I get out of it. But uh, yeah, that's what I get out of it. I think one of the interesting things, too, that I love noting down on this is when Sheridan presses them about Anna and how she could be alive. Uh, they just don't answer that. They just brush past it. Uh, Delenn and Kosh, they just go... Morden is the problem here because they don't want to say directly that she must be dead because if that is incorrect, then they would have inadvertently lied. And in season three, when she does come back, they do point out, it's like, well, we we just would have assumed that she wouldn't pick the shadows. So we didn't lie necessarily, uh, which is... is, uh, an extra little fuck you when you we watch were this. misled too we just we thought the best of people and i'm sorry that your 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 dead your seemingly dead wife chose the baddies whoopsie but we didn't say that she didn't die we just we kind of just did the whole minbari volon thing of just not addressing it because See- we don't know the answer i always remember that part but I always think of it as, like, they decided to bring her back because it was convenient. In the story or the the characters in the show? The, the shadows. Narrative. The, the shadows. shadows decided to do it because it was convenient, not yes. that she'd always sided with them. Because oh. they're, they're, the, the wording here is ambiguous enough. Those who would not serve were killed. But were they all killed? Delenn, maybe, maybe some of them were, were kept alive as prisoners. Anna might still be alive. Morton must be released. Captain Sheridan is on leave right now. Husband, a widower Sheridan is taking over the show again. Remember in the second episode? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a thing. It sure is a thing. Um... <laughs> And he he won't let it go. And it makes complete sense that he won't let it go because he is a seeker of justice and knowledge and understanding. And he's an emotionally driven person. Yes. And when he cares about a person, he deeply cares about them. That's what makes him... Uh very different to Sinclair. Sinclair was a very emotional person too and uh, his emotions did drive him but I would say Sinclair, I mean Sheridan is far more and it's far more of a character flaw as we see here, is far more driven via the state of his emotions. He he, he doesn't always take the time to stop and think about his actions. And even if he does, he will still often justify it. Justify thinking and acting with his heart and not his head. Yeah. Like, when he gets pulled up by his senior's officers, he's like, yeah, I know, I know I'm doing the wrong thing, but Mm. I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, so obviously the plot is uh, he finds out that Morden, uh, our good friend Mr. Morden, is involved in his wife's seeming uh, her, her death was pr- was on the same ship and he, he was must present be involved because he he got out of there somehow so she might be alive any hope of that any potential of uh, any shred of that being a potential he will chase it down and we know this to be 
a sore point for him in the show. We've we've heard about his dead wife, and we know how much it means to him. So to have this little thing, whether it be just this man... Glimmer of hope. He will do everything in his power and more to to pursue it. And we, we see it to its uh, almost bitter end here. Uh, I love this. I love this so much. I, I, I mean... It's an acting masterclass from Bruce Boxleitner, who I I I think we need to just uh uh just applaud here. I mean, he's our lead guy. Sometimes Sheridan is saddled with being the boring guy protagonist man, and even through that, Bruce Boxleitner always manages to bring some charisma and energy to the role. Uh, but here. He's given some juicy material, and Bruce just steps up to the plate and knocks it out of the park. You feel for him. You 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 want to follow him, even if it is down this self-destructive road. Because, you will follow him into the dark. Because Bruce embodies the character so magnificently. It is... Uh, he... You can't, you can't take your eye off of him, is how I would describe it. I intend to find out what happened, what really happened. If necessary, you will sit here for the next hour, the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year, the next 500 years. But you will not leave here until I know In There All the Honor Lies, one of the central complaints that we had was they threw dirt on Sheridan and didn't want to actually keep it on there and didn't actually want to address it. They just wanted to wash it off. And I argued that they never want to dirty Sheridan up. They never want to make him look too bad and give him too much grit. They just want to keep him, in some episodes, being the smiley nice, happy-go-lucky guy with some minor brooding elements. And it's as if they, uh, JMS is just, oh, I'll, I'll address that here, Ryan. Here you go, in the shadow of Zaha Doom, in which all of those complaints from there, all the honor lies, are just irrelevant here. Sheridan is doing uh, morally and legally reprehensible things he is fueled by anger. He is completely throwing away all of his professionalism. He disregards the everybody around him because it doesn't matter. I have to get... Uh, he's obsessed. He's obsessed. And uh, I was so happy to see that on this rewatch. I knew it was coming up. And I know it's going to be a thing that comes up with his character a lot. But I was finding myself a little bit... uh. Uh, fatigued, I guess, or, or slightly bored with Sheridan over the last several episodes just because of how much of a nice guy he is. So I was happy to see them get to this uh, bump in the road and actually allow him to be a real bad boy. What do you think? Yeah. I agree. It's like they recognized it and were like, no, no, no. This is going to stain him. And this changes him in a lot of ways. It's not just the, like, you know, he will never sleep again, never sleep well again. 
whatever the fuck it is that Dylan, Dylan says. Was in but it's also that he finds that he doesn't want to have to cross this line again. Mm. He doesn't want to be this blinded again. And I think that that's part of what motivates him to go see Kosh and to ask for help. And he can't afford to do it again. Now that there are far bigger things in the universe to face. More is at stake. Than his fucking wife, which he cares so much about. His career and his wife. Now the entire fate of the universe is in the balance. And he has to... As the captain of Babylon 5, as as an officer in Earth Force, and as our protagonist, he has to put aside... He learns his lesson. Yeah, he has to put aside the, the ego and the heartbreak that he's facing here in this episode for... Da-da-da-da! The greater good. The greater good. What we're presented to be... The greater good, which is to fight the shadows. I I just really thought what was great here is he does the things that you want him to do when you hear the pitch of this, which is, one, we've been waiting for somebody in our crew of protagonists and heroes to find out about Mr. Morden and investigate him, and to give us answers and actually nail him down, right? Yeah, yeah. We want answers. And we want one of our... We want somebody like Sheridan or Garibaldi to give that... Retribution. Yeah, we want somebody like Sheridan or Garibaldi to find Mr. Morden and just grill him. Just put his ass on blast, because he's just this smug, handsome guy that's just been walking around without any consequences thus far, and you're just waiting for the shoe to drop. And, uh, you know, you think, oh, it's going to be Garibaldi, but giving it to Sheridan is such a great move, because, again, the unbridled rage that Sheridan uh, displays in this show is is what you want to see unleashed upon Mr. Morden, who is a character who will not easily break. We know that. And that is a part of the joy, is watching Sheridan completely lose it, and Morden just keeping calm, and at best, being just tired, and just uh, just kind of over it, but he never gets to break. And we know that it will take a lot, but we know also that... Sheridan's not going to break either. He's just going to keep hammering down on this until he gets what he needs, and that is why they all need to stop him for multiple reasons. You're going to lose your job, your credibility, your reputation, and if you do get the answers, you're going to start an intergalactic war that we're not prepared for. So let your wife go, man. Let Morden go. Uh, <laughs> but I also really, uh, really loved is he's got the guy there, he's breaking the law, he's, he hasn't charged him with anything, he's using the letter of the law to defeat the spirit of the law. As... Great line from Talia. It's probably one of her best lines, and one of the lines that encapsulates a lot of actions taken in the show from characters, in which characters in the series and ones that we don't see of in the periphery, like on Earth, where they're taking the letter of the law and twisting it and defeating the spirit of it. And I... Uh... What what's great is he does all of these things that 
crosses these lines. Garibaldi quits. He's uh, He can't do it. Ivanova is chasing him around. Everyone's giving him the, please stop it. We like you. And if you keep doing this, we're going to have to unfriend you. <laughs> we're going to have to take you up and uh, to the higher-ups and you could lose your job and we could all get in trouble as well. And what saves it? And I, I want to hear from you about this is what stops Sheridan from being an unlikable character here or somebody who's crossed that line for us? What is it that stops that from happening? Because we've talked about Star Trek Discovery where Michael Burnham could do the similar things and she has crossed that line many a times for us. And uh, there have been other characters in, in, in shows as well that, that have that happened. We talk about it a lot in our thoughts on our, on our Patreon series where where some shows fail is when they take that character, their protagonist, and they cross them over that line from likable to unlikable, from hero to uh, morally reprehensible, and they don't recognize it. What do you think stopping it here? Motivations. I think it's a big part of it that we know his motivations, to be honest. We understand that he is seeking justice and answers, not retribution. Mm -hmm. It's a means to an end, and he's so focused on the end that he's disregarding his own principles. Because the way of expressing those things gets in the way of what he wants to do. Yeah. It, and it, it's not just because it's convenient for the plot or it heightens the stakes. It's because we know John Sheridan's heart. Yes, and we have a heart. We have a heart as well. Because what makes it for me, it's the line, it's the acting, the direction of the the conversation between Ivanova and Sheridan. In which oh, I love. So, sorry to jump in again, but there was a just so many little things in that scene that I was just in awe of, and I was just taking my time to appreciate that scene and the way that Ivanova reaches for his arm and mm -hmm. he shakes her off yeah. and like he does that that twice and the way that that's incorporated into the conversation and layers it yeah and you know that that's a performance decision that they like they worked out. Like, that's the blocking of the scene. Mm. And it adds so much to that moment for me because it's that physical expression of reaching out to somebody. And being rejected. And him rejecting her. But you can also see that he doesn't want to ruin their relationship. Yeah. But he is physically emo and emotionally unwilling to stop. What what I was going to touch upon, and that's, that is all true, is 
the conversation between him and and Ivanova in which he just lays it out in which this is this is what is going on could you let him go could you and it's not just him talking to a character we know and it makes sense because no she wouldn't which he answers with we know Ivanova very well that all works but it is talking to us the audience I have a heart, I have emotions, and I'm empathetic to uh, to Sheridan, even though he's doing things that I would hope that I would never do. I have that empathy for him. I go, I relate, I get it, I'm there, I'm with him. And when he says, could you do it? Could you let him go? No, you're right, I couldn't do it, and nor can Ivanova. And then you touch upon them, uh, how, how well-crafted and how uh, much continuity of character there's been on all fronts. It's a perfect person to talk to, is, is Ivanova, because we know Ivanova to break the rules for similar reasons, where she talked to her father on his deathbed. She she broke the regs and did shady shit so that she could do that. And so when he says it to her, it hits even harder because, of course not. And on the extra level that makes it, that seals the deal for me, is when she says, no, I couldn't. He replies back to it with this absolutely chilling tone of voice that that Bruce delivers here that almost gets overlooked in the momentum of the scene in which he says uh says something along the lines of uh neither can I and it's this sense of uh acknowledgement but also he's perplexed by it too like I wish I could but I I thought I could but I can't just that, 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 all in the emotionality of his voice, it is conveyed with just that single line in which I'm on board with it because he wishes that he could be the better person. He wishes he could be this person that everybody wants him to be, but he just can't let him go. I would like to, but I, I you can't, I can't, no one can let this guy go. He's evil. We have to figure it out. It is bone chilling, it's harrowing, and it's deeply emotional. And that is why it doesn't cross that line because he doesn't do anything directly. Like, yeah, he's breaking the law. He's being a bad cop man, but we are so uh, emotionally emotionally attached to the character to the point in which it makes you question your own uh, actions in a similar situation. And that's why it works for me. We we got to also applaud the actor of Mr. Morden for giving us everything we've needed from him, which is just the biggest shit-eating grins I've ever seen any person portray. He has such a sexy yet punchable face, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, he really does. (laughs) Like, when... Sheridan decides to let him go and it zooms in on the TV screen and Morden's reacting as if he knows what's happening with this big, cheesy, shit-eating grin. I just delight in that because that's the fucking character I know and love. I Morden's barely been in the show, by the way. Yeah. And yet I know him so well, I feel. I know him better than I know Michael. From Discovery. Not Michael Garibaldi, of course. No. no. <laughs> we all know Garibaldi. We know what his second and third favorite thing in the universe is. Uh, that's why I felt the need to clarify. 
Uh, yeah, Morden. He's just he doesn't do much. That's the whole point. Is the fact that he does so little. He just he has his script that he 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 sticks to when interrogated, and just a moment that I always think about is when we open up with the interrogation, and Sheridan has his shoes up on the table, his feet up on the table. We see mm-hmm. the soles of his shoes, and you're looking at it, going, "Huh, I've never seen the bottom of their shoes before." And then Morden comments on it too. Nice shoes. I love it. I love it. What what a what a wonderful dynamic right there. The dynamic of uh the the affable guy in which this is going to be all water off of his back, Mr. Morden and and Sheridan where all of this is getting to him. All of this is getting to him. And I find it an interesting display of power as well because we know that Morden cannot show dominance in that way mm. uh, by, like, being outwards and it being in a position of being relaxed. Yeah. But he has his power because he's staying still. And that's Morden. Uh, that's how he... Uh, that's how he uh, gets under people's skin. That's how he smoozes and charms people, and that's how he uh, disarms them and and off kilters them. Is his ever so calm and collected? I've met and people... he believes he is righteous. I've met people like that. You know, when you're you're having an an an, an intense moment, and the other person in it is is just so just so slick like that and it is it is infuriating to be in those kind of conflicts because there's that air of th- for them for that person with Mr. Morden everything's going to work out well for me everything's coming up Morden and you go no fuck you no it isn't because you're obviously wrong and you're obviously bad and I'm right but they're so confident in themselves that it's kind of this brick wall. You can't get past it. Yeah. This is this is uh, actually shattered by uh, the Via scene, which I would like to transition into if you don't have anything else more to say about angry Sheridan interrogating Morden. There is one other thing. I have then. one thing, too, I want to say, too. Because <laughs> there's a moment I love. Uh, this is a moment that I'd love to. Just give me 24 more hours. <laughs> like, he's so unwilling to admit how long it would actually take. Like, he's like, I'm close, I'm close, I'm close. And I full-heartedly believe Garibaldi is like, you've gotten fucking nowhere. Yeah. You're kidding yourself. Yeah. Oh, one of the moments I, I want to highlight is when he gives him the picture picture of Anna Sheridan and he doesn't react to it. He's just like, ah, what is, is this? Is this meant to mean something yeah. to me? <laughs> and then he quietly presses his link to play the Icarus footage. And I, oh, I absolutely adore the acting where it's acting upon acting. Again, masterclass of acting this episode is where uh, Ed Wasser, the performer, is having to play Morden. First time reacting of, oh, he's figured it out. And then the character of Morden acting 
nonchalant. And he's not good at it in that moment where he goes, oh, that. And then he gets into the real mode of Morden. But that, oh, oh, yeah, that is seeing Morden genuinely thrown. You see the gap. Yeah, he wasn't expecting that. Yeah, you see a gap. You don't see fully through to Morden himself. Not in that moment. But you see a gap. The gap between the lines. Mm-hmm. Between the of like what are the shadows telling him to say? And what is he just his general demeanor? Uh because it's a carefully crafted character that Morden has put on for himself to 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 uh to uh show to others. Uh of course we have to talk about the Talia scene. The whole Talia sequence in this in which Sheridan, Sheridan manipulating he abuses her trust that that may be the most tricky thing when it comes to if we like Sheridan or not is he gets told he asks Talia through the normal channels of can I do this can I do that no you can't da 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 and then he just disregards her wishes and not just the 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 lore and the psychor or whatever but on a personal level, Talia does not want to do this. It, it, she doesn't want to besmirch her integrity. And Sheridan doesn't give a shit and does it anyway. What do you think about that? Something else that I was really appreciating about that is how Zach goes along with it. Mm-hmm. I, I I love that seed that's planted. Oh, Zach going along with it, even though he's a little bit like, I don't know about that, yeah. but he'll do it anyway because it's his job. Uh, and then that happens with Nightwatch. In the same episode. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and like, but that kind of repeats itself mm-hmm. with Zach. It's like it takes him too long to cut on to things. Yeah, and he doesn't question, he doesn't follow up on what is right and wrong. He'll question it, but he doesn't follow up on it until it's a little later, if at all. Uh, but what do you think about uh, Talia being used? <sighs> yeah, yeah. The way that she's, her trust is violated. It's oddly devastating that Sheridan does it. And we see it coming before Zach does. Zach does. (laughs) And we're like, oh, we know exactly where this is going as soon as Sheridan gets that kind of smirk on his face Mm -hmm. before he turns around to the map. it, It hurts. It hurts to watch because... We know what Talia values. Yeah. And we also know her trauma mm. when it comes to touching the minds of criminals. And also her general abuse in terms of the core and others uh, treat her as a commodity, as an object, as... It's uh, what she's useful for, not, yeah, not who she is. Not not what she cares about. 
So yeah, we'll invade her mind to scan her loyalty because that's what the core wants. We're psychops. Or I'll give Talia telekinesis as a gift because I'm Jason Ironheart. Or, or on and on it goes. We've talked about how many times Talia is a victim. That's her character. That's her theme. And this is yet another example of that. But what hits about it so much is it is somebody we know to be a good person doing it to her. It is actually one of the people close to uh, us. It isn't a, an, a one-and-done character or a guest spot character or just a general organization in the world that's doing it to Talia. It is Sheridan doing it. He knows what he's done and he doesn't regret it because the ends justify the means here. And that's what's so heartbreaking about it and so gross about it where... All the other stuff, you go, okay, I get it, that's fine, blah, blah, blah. But this one, it's it's a lot it's a lot harder to, to swallow that pill because going back into the continuity of character and themes, all of the stuff that happens to Talia and will happen to Talia is is absolutely brutal. And this is this is just really tough stuff to watch because he's adding to that on purpose. It's not a naive move on his part. I guess I had that coming. Yeah, I guess you did. Hope it was worth it. Well, her reaction tells me there's a lot more to this guy than even I thought. And that's a start. Via is our boy, our golden child, our king, Via. And it the episode opens up with Via and Morden. And I of course we're gonna talk about the what Via wants and the wave and all of that, but what I really want to go through is Morden. We have been given Morden as this... Well, we get the refugee stuff first. Yeah, 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 but we've been given Morden as... We've been given Morden as this, as we've said, very calm and collected character, this smiling, faux-friendly guy who's just... Doing it for your benefit, especially when it's to Londo and the Centaurus. I'm a selfless person who's just trying to aid your empire. I'm just trying to give glory to your republic with no, nothing in return other than one or two minor little favors. And you're not appreciating that. Again, it's him acting. The character of Morden is acting. And what is, what is, what is a joy? is Veer doesn't buy the bit, just like he didn't with Reefer. He's not going to play the game. He's not going to pour Reefer a glass of, of, of drink, and he's not going to uh, uh, bemuse uh, Morden's little tit-for-tat here. He's not going to go through the repertoire and the script here. He is just going to stand there and reject Morden gleefully. And this is when we see the real Morden. The one who... Oh, you're not going to buy this, huh? Well, fuck you. I don't have to pretend now. And I love that. Ed Wass's performance is so great. When you see him just go from that smiley to... Oh, okay then. I don't need to do that. Sit. Sit down and talk to me. And I'll talk to you. What do you think about that? Because it's very subtle. I love it. I love it. 
because it makes both of those characters even more interesting. It is an immovable object meets an unstoppable force. That's what those two characters are in this scene. V is just not fucking having it. I just love that dynamic. I love seeing the glimpses of Morden's real attitudes towards people and how he just he hates Veer because Veer sees through him easily. All of that all of that uh energy Morden puts into this image he plays, Veer just 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 brushes it away and just just goes, I see you. Yeah. And I don't like you. And it's just like, oh, how dare you ruin all my hard work. <laughs> and so then we get the iconic. Well, Via, what do you want? What do you want? Because you're not happy with what I'm giving to Londo and the rest of your people. So I'll amuse myself and ask, what do you want? I love that that too. Ed Wasser does a really great kind of uh, rhythm to that, the lead up, where it's obviously false. He doesn't care what he wants, but it's also this little, can I corrupt fear? Yeah, it's not on behalf of the shadows the way that the other times he asked that question. Where... Yeah, this feels a personal thing of, what do you want? Like, I, can I corrupt you? I just want to see if I can. Like, if you... If you don't fucking want this, what do you fucking want? It is a mixture of that frustration, but also, oh, okay. I hope I can break you. Mm-hmm. Let me know what you want so I can give you the monkey paw thing too. He's just so angry. I love I love it. I love it so much. Love, love, love is the word I keep using a lot because this episode is just such a machine of perfection here. Uh, uh, Rachel, let's talk about what Via wants. I'd like to live just long enough to be there when they cut off your head and stick it on a pike as a warning to the next ten generations that some favors come with too high a price. I want to look up into your lifeless eyes and wave like this. Can you and your associates arrange that for me, Mr. Morton? That monologue is iconic. Like, like we said earlier, we refer... To this a lot. Yes. It's uh, it's iconic. It's very quotable. Yes. And it, it's, it's well written. It's well written. And I always read it as Via's been waiting. Yeah, yeah. It's a very prepared thing. Like he's thing. been plotting it when he's been having to run between Morden and Londo or mm. Sinan meetings or like with the two of them or with Londo and Reefa or just mm-hmm. doing paperwork. It's just that thing. He's been like, stewing on it. If he asks me, what am I going to say? <laughs> and I love it. I love that it's packed with that meaning. Yeah, it's very much, oh, it's very much a, uh, hey, the jerk store cold and they're running out of you, where he's prepared meticulously in his brain this comeback and he finally gets to use it. And it's really good. I love first delivery on it. Because first, Stephen first comes from a comedic, he came from a comedic background, background primarily. I mean, he was in Animal House, of course, but that comedic background here 
really works because he has that sing-songy way of talking that a, a comedy guy like him would have where he's really, really relishing the lines. And so the speech is very funny. It's also funny because we never expect to hear any of this come from Veer. Yet at the same time, don't we? Because we know that Veer is very upset and very frustrated and very, very, very angry about where the state of his people and where Londo is going. So this this uh this seething rage-filled monologue is completely justified, but it does it does uh, it does blindside you. You just goes, whoa, Veer? Veer. The guy who played with his little Game Boy thing in the meeting? You have this type of worldview about somebody else? Awesome. You want to see somebody die? Yeah. Yeah, you want to see them get their head cut off? And and then also what I like, too, is there's wisdom in it, obviously, where it's not just, I want to see you die, but I want it to be a warning to the next ten generations that some favors come at too high a price, which is... True, some of these favors, that, especially the ones Londo are taking, are coming too high of a price. The, the, the death of many, many people, in fact. And, and we have seen the price of Londo's glory. And we will see more of it and more of it as we... But it's in the delve. forefront of our minds because we are seeing all of these nine refugees. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's just one of those things where also... You just wanted somebody. Somebody Somebody to stick it to him. Somebody to flip the finger at Mr. Morden and say, I see you and I hate you. And V is the first person to get to do that. And it's earned because V is an honest character. We know that too. He ain't afraid to speak his mind. And sometimes he can be very, very eloquent and other times he just has this type of thing in which it is just this punch to the face response and it just it knocks you on your ass and i i i love it i love it again love 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 is the thing being used because we're taking this bumbling fumbling comedy character and giving him all of these layers and dimensions that we we never thought we would have gotten when you saw him in that first episode where he was just like the kind of guy and and Londo acting as ah it's my stupid new attaché who doesn't know anything here we are and it's just more layers and you're just ex- I, I I can only speak for myself but when I first saw this it made me sit up and be excited for more Veer. I was like, oh man, I'm really excited to see Veer be a bigger player in this story. And there's another thing that I like. I like that we get the moment of Veer being reassured of his position with Londo. Mm. It was in the last episode? One of them. What, we haven't like, seen Veer in a little while. It, like, it was in a recent episode, the plot where he gets the letter that he's got to go home. Oh, that was in there, all the underlies. Yeah. 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 And so it also feels like he's like, I know I'm valuable to Londo. Yeah. I don't have to be valuable to you. Oh, that's, that's what's really uh, uh, delicious about it, too, is he's got nothing to lose. 
oftentimes Veer, like Zach Allen, is afraid to do anything like this because they don't want to lose something, whether it is their money, their job, their position, their reputation, their status, uh, the status quo of their life. They don't do it. But when they don't have anything to lose, they're comfortable to do it. And so that's what he has here, where Veer, there's nothing to lose to tell Morden to go fuck himself. Because what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Oh, Londo won't let me see Morden anymore? That's not a loss, that's a win. Oh, what's the worst? Morden stops talking to Londo? That's the ultimate goal. Yeah. It's a no, you know, it's all win-win for him here to just do this. There's no, there's not going to be any repercussions negatively on him. And there isn't. It's, it's, it's just wonderful. And of course, many people, B5 fans, we all love this because of the payoff. Yes. Because he gets what he wants. Yes. And, uh, like, even before before we get into that, though, I love the way that his moment with Morden is contrasted with his moment with Sheridan. Mm-hmm. When he's having to come and, like, bail out Morden. <laughs> yeah. And I... Oh. And he gives, like, the weakest defense yes. for him yes. as well. He's just no, like, eh. like it, He's like, I... It, to me, it it's reads... Like Londo wants him. So clearly that Veer doesn't want to do this. Mm-hmm. But he's been told that he has to do it. He's doing his job. And he has to do it in this order. Like, he has to say... This thing, and if it's still a no, this thing. If it's still a no, this thing. If he still says no, pull out this trump card. Mm-hmm. He's doing his job. That's it. He has no personal stakes in it. He's doing his fucking job he, like it, a yep. king. Our king, we know he's going to be emperor, but he's our golden boy. He's our golden ticket. What's he mean to Londo? Who is he? He must have a lot of clout with the Centauri Republic. But so far as he's told us, he's just an ordinary traitor. I'm sorry. That's an internal matter. But I've told you we are extending diplomatic immunity to Mr. Morton, so please release him. I don't have too much to say uh, about this side, but I have it here in my notes because it is a moment that really this whole little moment sticks out to me as Franklin is in this episode. And he, he gets some... Juicy monologue. He gets the juicy reflected gods in the eyes of dying patients speech, which look, I don't And another layer for his stims addiction. Yes. yes. Uh the irony of giving Sheridan the advice of we're both similar. We want we think that we can fix everything, but we can't, and we have to accept that. And I'm like, yeah, you do, Franklin. Yeah. You, you need to you, accept that. And you yarn. don't you don't apply that to yourself. You will give that advice to other people, and you know that Sheridan would do the same, but they don't listen to it. Mm-hmm. They don't apply it to themselves. Well, because, like, at, yeah. he acknowledges it. There's a problem with us. We believe that mm-hmm. it's up to us to fix it. Yep, and it's it's a fatal character flaw and a strength of them both. One of the things that I am noticing in the back half of season two, especially since the non-Centauri war is kicking off, is, 
how his growing sense of despair and existential dread is creeping in and how that's just furthering his stim addiction because he's afraid to go to sleep he's afraid to go to sleep but yes he's afraid to go to sleep because of all the horrors he's seeing on a day-to-day basis and how it's a how it is haunting him in his dreams so he doesn't want to sleep but also just on a on a existential level he is seeing death all the time and his whole thing is he wants to say his whole thing is to save lives and he's failing and he can't handle that he can't hack it and then we have the spiritual level of it in which if you were him you ask the question that he asks do you believe in god is there a point because you see all of this uh all of this horror and you have to ask is if there is a if there is a god out there how can they allow this is like what's the point of it all you you ask all those big questions to yourself and he's obviously feeling that Hence, he he talks to Ivanova. He, but, he, he, but he still identifies as a fundamentalist as well. No, not a fundamentalist, oh. a foundationalist. He, he is a fundamental guy, but no, he's a foundationalist, which Apologies is a Apologies fun... for misspeaking. Yes, thank you. It's a fun alien religion, but even then, he's not really doing it in the usual spiritual sense. He's still applying that to why he's feeling as angsty as he is. Yeah. The whole... The fur- the closer you look at God, the further you get a the further away you get to actually finding God. And he's seeing God every day. Yeah, in the eyes of his patients. I I don't have too much to say about this speech other than we had to acknowledge it. No, no. Other than, as well as that. Yeah, like, other than it's probably my favorite Franklin speech. Uh, I love the one in Believers, but I love this one more. I think it, I love the one in Believers of, like, the God speech there mm-hmm. just a little bit more. I, I, I always remember this one. I, and I loved the, 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 the whole conceit of it where I know what he's talking about without actually experiencing it fully myself yeah. of that, that they look and then they look away and it's mm-hmm. almost like they've seen something and is it God and then they're and there's gone. there's something reflected mm. Because I think everybody knows, everybody knows whether they've personally experienced it or not, that there is something Mm. beautiful and tragic about getting to see somebody born, somebody saving a life, and somebody dying. Mm-hmm. Like being there for those kinds of events are a reflection of the universe and whatever you believe. And no matter what you believe, when you're in those moments or you imagine being in those moments, you are reflected in a way. The moment that they look past you, you can't help but meet their gaze and just for an instant you see God reflected in their seen a lot of reflected gods today, Susan. And I'm wondering how we can keep believing in them when they've stopped believing in us. The Night Watch uh, uh, have entered the story, have entered the chat. And, uh, you know, I, 
I've never thought about it properly when giving this episode of viewing because when you know this is our first time, obviously we're we're podcasting about, it, so we're looking at things in a slightly different angle than when you do when you're just casually watching it. And so I was looking at this and I go, oh, we we meet we meet it through Talia first. Oh, so this is a Talia plot. Oh, and she's going to be involved, and I know that she isn't, but I go, oh, okay, so Talia's the thrust of this. Nah. It's Zack. It's Zack. It is Zack. Secretly, Zack is the thrust of this it's side of the story. It's a backdoor Zack plot. It's a backdoor Zack plot. And I know, obviously, going forward, how involved Zack is. But just on this on this episode alone, I was noting down how crafty that is. How how uh, how invasively it becomes a Zack story. And when I say story, obviously, it's not like he has a beginning, middle, and end in the traditional sense, but he does go through a whole little journey here in which... It's an arc. Yeah, he is drawn into this. He learns the things. He seems uh, not too sure. He doesn't seem to buy it and see the point of it. But then, over the course of the story, his involvement in the uh, Morden plot and seeing the stuff around him... He's a bridge between... The two things. Yeah, seeing the stuff around him, hearing about the hard choices being made and uh, and how he doesn't want to make them. And then by the end of it, he decides, ah, you know what? Fuck it. Why not manipulate it? Because I'm seeing everybody else manipulate things around here. I might as well get a slice of something. And there's no not going to be any repercussions on me because it's 50 extra creds to do what I do anyway and he doesn't realize how bad of a situation he's gotten himself into but let's just talk about it i mean the let's just talk about zach first zachary or zach free he's from the future could be zach free um <laughs> he his whole entire character is built up very nicely here in which he has the conversation with sheridan or sheridan monologues at him about winston churchill and his response is, I don't know if I could make a decision like that. I, you know, I don't want to think about it. He's Mr. I don't want to think about that. And I am uncomfortable with the notion that I could be in a situation like that. And I don't want to make big decisions. That's his character. And that's his journey in the show is he has learning to, to step up. And he's confronted with that. That's his arc. Is Zach is, I don't want to make big decisions. And then the show forces him to make big decisions. What does somebody like Zach, a blue-collar, everyday guy who's just trying to get by in the world without making a big splash, what does that guy look like? And how does that guy act, a.k.a. us, when we are, oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, uprising fascism is happening around me and I've been swept up in it. What do you do? What does a person like that do? Or uh, later on, stuff with Garibaldi and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I really love how that's set up here. I've been thinking about that a lot. Like when we were getting up to this episode, I knew this was coming because on our last rewatch, I, that really that really clicked into place. That Just that, that, that sentiment here of, I don't want to make big decisions. And then that's exactly what Zach has to do. He has to grapple with what is making a choice. And how not making a choice is still a choice as well. Yeah, being complicit is is uh something to be uh something to be uh 
cautious of as well, to be worried about as well. I'm glad it's a decision I don't have to make. I don't think I could live with myself. How many lives is a secret worth? I, yeah, I always forget how long the Night Watch subplot is. Mm-hmm. Because it's not something that that's brought up all of the time. But it is another layer of foundation of Earth is fucked. It's an es- it's it's an escalation. Because it's presented at first via uh Pierce Maccabee. You you see this guy and you go, Oh, blonde haired, blue eyed man. Okay, sure. Hmm. And he's talking to Talia, and he's using this uh, very polite, but rhetoric. also uh, uh, creepy rhetoric and language and manner of tone to invite her to this meeting in which Earth has organized this uh, Ministry of Peace, uh-huh. mini-packs for short. And you go, oh, Ministry of Peace. Hmm. Just hearing and they that, were referenced go, hmm. before as well, mm. and the context. Of We've had the a lot of ministries. Men- like the the Ministry of Peace, I'm pretty sure was um, mentioned at some point. Like, I think that the senator in the l- last episode that they're doing the interviews yeah, with yeah, is yeah. attached to. The mystery of peace. Yeah, he was. He was some like uh, one of the many slimy. One of the many creepy ministries on Earth, and you go, oh, just even hearing ministry of peace, it's like oh, nineteen eighty four type thing. Okay, radio, here we go, and it is okay. Back in the day, it was considered uh, uh, a little bit too outlandish, but when it just hard cuts to obvious Nazi meeting in which he has the banner behind him and he's holding the armband and he's on this platform above everybody else and he's this blue-eyed, blonde-haired gentleman who's calmly speaking about all of these uh, uh, fascist and totalitarian rhetoric speaking points. It was, oh, that's outlandish. Oh, don't people recognize what this is? That was back in the day. Yeah. No. We're like, yeah, that's mm. how it works. That's how it works, and people genuinely go for this. Huh? Still. Yeah. We haven't learned. We haven't learned. I, I would- Well, some people learned the wrong lesson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean... When you watch this that first time, because this is the B plot, this is a secondary plot, because you you've got all the allure of all it, the Sheridan. It sometimes, like, can feel like a bit of a distraction. Yeah, it's, it's like a I don't want to get pulled away from Sheridan. I want to see him. I want to see his. Yeah, you want to see all the modern shit and Sheridan stuff. But when this is just creeping in there, what was what has been your overall reaction to the reveal? of Nightwatch as this element that's going to be in the show now. Because we know, we've known, I mean, you when you first watching it, you knew Earth was shitty, but you didn't know it was going to get to this level of shitty. Or did you? I had a feeling. I had a feeling. And it was really only after... It's a shitty episode, but, you know, it does have a legacy. Uh, TK? (laughs) 
after Walker Smith said, watch your back? No. <laughs> no. The president doctor. A hunter prey. Hunter prey. After hunter prey and seeing the conspiracy theories and the layers of issues with the government, I'm like, how much more fucked is it going to get? It's only going to get more openly Openly fucked. Fuck, yeah. And did you expect the the Nazi fascist turn here and how people in the universe of the show are just, oh, okay, about it? Yeah, I kind of did because of the Earth-first terminology that's been thrown around a lot in the show. Mm. Like, it's been there consistently. Yes. The earth first attitude. And I'm like, that that's a step towards. It's easy for us to throw stones and mock people back in the day who watched this and thought it was a little bit outlandish. That it's because nobody... they were hopeful. They were hopeful that nothing like that would happen again, and that we would be smarter than this. That we wouldn't rep- we wouldn't reprise or repeat uh, yeah. repeat those mistakes, and that and that it was a, a like a, a a narrative construction that because they, this is a means to an end, so it's like oh. oh. Okay, this is just one of those scripty things that I'm just going to have to accept because obviously in the real world, we wouldn't be this dumb and we wouldn't be as stupid as this and we know better and we wouldn't allow this, right? It's easy to throw that stone back in the past, but I've got to ask, did you ever have that when you're watching it? Because we watched this before all of the big upturns in the way that we know it now, obviously... There's Brexit and Trump America and things back here in Australia as well. And it's not as if none of this uprising uprising fascism hasn't been around before and was around even before this episode aired. Yeah. I was curious of, like, what do you think? Like, have you had that reaction in the past yourself to Babylon 5 doing this? I don't remember having it too much. As soon as the switch flipped in the show, it flipped in my mind, I think. Mm. If it being like, no, it, it, it's doing this. The world of Babylon 5 is doing this. Mm. And I never really fully grappled with the implications that it had with the potential for it to happen in the world again. And I think, honestly, I do think of history as being cyclical it like there is always power struggles in the world between people between groups between nations humanity always seeks to divide itself so it always made sense and felt true to me that Going amongst the stars and being with alien races wouldn't change anything. Would not change that. It would just change who is us and who is them. I was more taken aback that a show would do this 
rather than it being a thing in the real world that we could fall for again, because I've talked about it before, but I grew up in a small country town in Australia, one of the most racist and bigoted towns in Australia. That is a fact. That isn't just me saying it because I live there. That is a genuine article of fact. So I was very keenly aware of what this looks like in the real world. So that wasn't a surprise to me uh, that this is a thing that could happen. But I was more taken aback at a sci-fi show. Again, it's that indoctrinated, old in Doctor Who and in uh, Star Trek and all of these other nice sci-fi shows that I watch would maybe have it as a one-off baddie, that one corrupt admiral or that one evil time lord who's a Nazi. Not, you know, the human race and the human government. And and not a character that we like. And it is... Like, uh, we like Zach, but he's involved in this. He's Mm. not fully that like he yes. doesn't he doesn't lean fully into it and become one of them in yeah but he is involved he is complicit he assists i i just want to say too though we're talking about that in a rewatch perspective when we first watch this we don't know zach very, very well what we do know is oh no zach don't fall for it is more so the reaction that I had. But again, I was not too yeah. surprised for the real world sake of it. Uh, but in terms of the media, I was, because usually it is the, unless this is fully the show, like this is a, like we open it up and it's a dystopian show where there's the, you know, the empire. And usually those are still the bad guys. Here we were set up with, oh, and then it's slowly built, and then here we go, and off and off to the races we go. And I was excited because I hadn't really seen anything like this in my science fiction shows. So give it to me, baby. And they do. And I I look, I'll be I'll be honest, I I'm still conflicted. Well, no, no, I'm no longer conflicted because this is one real world thing I didn't think we would fall for. But the obvious Nazi armband, I always thought, ah, that's a little on the nose. Yeah, I was like, that's just shorthand. Yeah, it's it's obvious shorthand and iconography to really hammer it in. I thought the blue-eyed, blonde-haired gentleman was enough, but uh, the armband I always thought was a, a little bit too much of a uh, hammering in the nail there. But now... Nope. It's Nothing. fine. It's <laughs> fine. You got it in one, JMS. Congratulations. It's all on the table. It's all on the table. <sighs> We're less interested in actions than we are in attitudes. We must help protect society against its own worst instincts. And by taking these bold steps, we will help to ensure a better future for everyone. I'm proud to be a part of it, and I hope you'll all join me in becoming part of the Night Watch. It's time for the spotlight, Ryan. What's the spotlight? We're the turning it on. <laughs> the spotlight is when we shine a light on a particular performer for this episode. Somebody who's here for a guest spot. We highlight and discuss their performance as well as their career in general. Hmm. Yeah, and of course, there's a few people to look at 
But we wanted to go for Pierce Maccabee, the character of Pierce Maccabee, who is played by... Alex Hyde-White. So Pierce Maccabee is, of course, the Night Watch guy, the mini-packs representative. He's in two scenes. I always think there's more of him, that, mm-hmm. and that's down to how... Well implemented the character is. Yes. And the performance mm. is like... I imagine that there's more of him because I can so easily imagine him slipping into other scenes and being Mm -hmm. with other characters and being a part of this world. He's only two scenes and he's perfect for what you need. One performance thing I thought was really well done on his behalf of it is him talking to Talia. And he's given the whole exposition and spiel about the meetings and about what they are and all of that stuff. And his machine gun firing his way through the lines of dialogue, which is what's needed, but also makes sense for his character to do. But what I really loved was the very, uh, very abrupt and clipped manner of saying, say yes to coming to the meeting, Tatalia, the way he says it in which it comes across as there is no choice, say yes. This desperation, but it's deliberately false desperation. It is He's the recruiter so move. manipulative. It is the cult recruiter move. Just the vocal tick in the way he says it really does remind me of when I've watched videos of people who have talked about being recruited into fascist groups or or weird religious cults and how they pressure you in that weird way where they're oh so friendly and polite, but also you feel like you need to do it because they're so desperate. Positive peer pressure. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, uh... Obviously, there's a few things of why they cast him, right? He's his aesthetic, and he's got that nice, you can trust him British accent, doesn't he? Yeah. Why do you, okay, can we unpack that a little? What's that about? Is that more of an Australian thing? Or a Commonwealth thing? Like, do Americans get that? Because I know British people can, like, be easily evil because of their voice in media as well. But to me, the way he speaks, there's that level of, oh, I can trust that. That that accent and that cadence. Everybody's obsessed with David Attenborough's voice. So. Yeah. What, what mm. is that about? What do you, is it just because they were a big empire and they had a stranglehold on radio waves and TV waves and in early Australia, our accent was so blurred with them, so they were like (laughs) this trusted voice of authority? I think that is a part of it for us. Is it? But I also... Imperialism? (laughs) I also think it's the warmth Mm. and strengths of a male British tone that's also dignified but when they have that mm. little bit of renounced pronunciation the RP that's mm-hmm. the aristocracy of British have that particular slant to their dialect a lot there's there's a there's a confident authority there in his voice and that accent in which he believes it. He knows what he's talking about. So 
you can get why people are sucking in. And what I love too, and I, I, I'd love you to kind of expand upon this, is he's soft-spoken and he's ever so polite. And he's, he's ta- gentle. He's gentle. And yet what but he's talking about is fucking... Yet what he's talking about is fucking terrifying. But he's he's dressing it up with soft words and phrases and a, and a very... Oh, all of the euphemisms. And a very, very meek delivery. But yet at the same time, you feel the... The, the iron boot about to stomp down as well because of the visuals are being shown. Him on the on, on 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 the stage with the banner behind him and we're being shot from below looking up at him. Right? Yeah. It's that contrast between the visuals and the tone. And you get that that clash. Mm. Of he's saying it in this way where it's it's a good thing, right? Mm. And you get how people are swept up in that. Yeah. But when you stop to think about it and realize the implications and what does this mean, mm. then you become really uncomfortable. He never comes back, but he leaves a mark because he introduces a very prominent story beat to the show so although his character isn't much what he delivers is what is important but uh i i want to give credit to the actor he does a a great job for the little he's here he's a far better example of a a fear monger than uh malcolm biggs was the character malcolm biggs in uh in the episode where Von, with the Earth First episode, with Ivanova's racist Australian boy ex boyfriend with the ugly sweater, far better, uh, far better example of a similar type of character. Uh, so, are you familiar with this actor? We looked through his IMDb. He's got a good catalogue. I of work would there. have seen him in many things, but I don't remember him. <laughs> you don't remember him in Catch Me If You Can? Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Wow, we, we don't remember him in The Last he, Crusade. He's, he's uh that guy. I I I'm going to be I have I looked at his career and he's been He's in, got 99 he, credits. He's I find him a fascinating figure because we've had this before where we've had actors we know and their career is lots of one and done TV spots and not like Oh, they were in this one show for eight. No, they did one or two episodes of a show, and then they move on to the next one. They move on to the next one. I think about the uh, the Narn assassin in the Parliament of Dreams, in which that was basically his career, and uh, it still is. And we had seen him in shows before, so it didn't feel as peculiar. But what was really striking me, looking at this guy's IMDb, I'm not as familiar with any of his roles like you. Nothing jumps out. Yes, he played Indiana Jones's dad in Last Crusade in the flashback sequences, so he was a young version of Sean Connery. Do I remember him as that? Probably I don't. But if I watched it, I go, "Oh, it's that guy." And he, same with him in Catch Me If You Can. But in his in his real IMDb, it's a lot of, oh, one episode of this show I've never heard of. One episode of this show I've never heard of. Two episodes of this show. He never settled on being in one thing, which I, I'm I'm struck by 
because since I don't know him in anything really, I don't give him like I can't give him that pass we have with other other actors. So I'm constantly questioning, huh? It's kind of is it weird that he never just did a show? Yeah, but I do remember his face when I look at the stills because mm. I was just like. I, I swear I remember this character. What was this character? So I looked up uh, like who he was in Dexter, but mainly in Bones. He was in an episode of that. Yeah. And I was like, I remember that name. And he was, I'm, I'm pretty sure he was a slimy as fuck politician in that. I, I, I believe you. He has a thankless like, job as an actor. Because he still is like him in a suit uh-huh, at, at a conference a table. And I'm pretty sure like uh, Booth gets annoyed at him for not giving him like a proper amount of information. It's uh, that thing of like need to know basis and you don't need to know. Mm-hmm. Even though you're investigating the possible murder of my boss. Whoopsies. Whoopsies. Uh, yeah, I he has the thankless job as an actor, but it's a needed one. Where and this isn't to discredit his talents, but this is the role that some people have to do. Of he's the guy that you won't remember, but he was there. He pushed the story along. He gave exposition. He gave uh conflict in episodes of shows, but you aren't going to remember his his roles as easily as other actors and and that's unfortunate obviously I, I would imagine that would be tough for for an actor like him but that is what it seems like he's done throughout his career is be like here two scenes in an episode i imagine in bones he's not in a lot of scenes he's probably like <laughs> no. in one or two he's a guy that his quote on his IMDb IMDb page is the classic uh, there are no small roles you know there are no small actors just small roles and he's that guy he's just he's always working he's always just doing little bits and bobs but I found his personal life to be fascinating so his dad on the other hand I don't know if you looked at his dad but his dad was a very well known actor back in the, My Fair Lady. He was in the, his dad. His dad has double the amount of credits he does. Old classic British actor man that I'm sure once you look him up, you go, oh, that guy, he was in everything. And he was just one of those kind of uh, more supporting actors, not as much of a leading man, his father, but he was just in a ton of stuff. And uh, he was in Battlestar Galactica, the original. Uh, he was in the uh, TV movie and then like one or two episodes of the show, as was this guy, his son. Uh, the audition process for that was his dad was auditioning for it and he had to read off his lines to somebody. So he just read them off against his son. And so they went, hey, your son's pretty good. We'll have him be a pilot or something in this episode. And that's how he got his job on that. And then, you know, found his footing at being a guy that just kept doing things like that, where it's like, hey, you're pretty good. Do you want this small role here? Yeah, sure. And that's how we get him in B5. He was in Hill Street Blues, which we know they get actors from, such as Peter Jurisic. So I'm I'm imagining that's how he got here. That, oh... A referral process. One of the casting people, or one of the actors, or JMS himself, or somebody was like, oh, that guy was good. Let's bring him in. 
And uh, that's how he got here. He's uh, He's got a, a B5 trivia fact. Do you know? No. His father-in-law at the time gets to be in Babylon 5. End of the season, in fact, he's Mr. Lance. Oh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That feels right. Mm-hmm. Both British, so of course it would feel right. Uh, but that's all I've got for you on this guy. I thought he was good. Short but sweet, but uh, there you go. That's it. What would you rate this on our scale of yum being bad and yum yum being good? Do I even need to say it? Yeah, probably. We can skip it. This it's the it's former. It's the former. We'll stick to the former. Uh, I don't think we've said like a single negative thing about this episode. It's perfect. It, it, it's near there. Uh, it's exactly what it should be, in my opinion. Mm. It's a yum yum. Yum yum. It's a yum yum from me. Yum yum. I am going to tell us what we're going to be watching next week. On the next Babylon 5. According to the DVD, we are up to episode 17, which is called Knives. He sees strange visions, dreams, strange, strange dreams. This is a weird description. Gradually, Sheridan understands he's become a host to an alien life form. Meanwhile, a friend, and I I don't know how to pronounce this actor's name yet, we'll learn next week, but uh, Carmen Arginzinho wishes to die challenging Londo Malari to an uh, obligatory Centauri death match. Knives! Larry Dottilio will be back next week on Yum Yum 5. Rachel, we're wrapping it up. Take us out. Take out... Here you go. I'm throwing the keys over to you, Rachel. Take the car out. Well, first I just wanted to say that I was on the last best B5 podcast for this episode. For Knives. Sorry. Not in the shadow of Zaha Doom. Yes. Yes. So you, you can get a sneak peek. At <laughs> uh, Rachel's hot takes <laughs> on Knives. Yeah. Well, well, people, next time we're going to be talking about Knives, but Rachel has given her opinion on Knives on the last Best B5 podcast, which everyone can check out, as you said. But that's okay, because, Rachel, you won't be here next episode. Larry Dottilio will be joining us next week. So, people, I'm... I thought you were going to leave it as a surprise, Ryan! We've already said it so many times. He's in the corner waiting. (sighs) He's waiting to hear about Knives, but But until then... But they didn't know that it would just be... It's okay, always okay. it's always just me and Larry. Sometimes you pop up to let us know that you're going to be here too, but you're just going to just quietly sit in the yes. corner. You're going to tag team it with Larry. Yes. If you want to discuss this episode or upcoming episodes, perhaps, or anything at all, you can engage with us on the various social medias. Ryan makes some amazing and hilarious posts that go up across them, including Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, Twitter, Reddit, Twitter, mm. TikTok, 
All of them, yum yum pod, yum yum podcast. Either one, it's all in the description. But so follow us. You, do if it. you want to be a little bit more direct, you might want to send an email to yum yum pod at gmail dot com. And if you want more of a private conversation, you can join our Patreon because we have a lovely little Discord. Yep, a group Discord. It's a part of the perks of joining our Patreon. If you want or have the means to support the show, look us up, Yum Yum Podcast on Patreon. We have many pieces of content. We have a whole series on there in which we talked about the top five and bottom five rated episodes of Star Trek from the original series to Enterprise according to the IMDb rating system of the bottom five and top five we are going through the current uh, run of modern Star Trek Star Trek Picard and Strange New Worlds so if you want to hear our takes on those as they come out come over to Patreon Uh, we have multiple tiers we're watching the X-Men movies once a month and giving them a look over it is a uh it's a place to be. It's happening. It's popping off, people. You don't want to miss out. Uh, Rachel, this episode was so busy. Shadow in the Shadow of Zaha Doom. We had Zach Allen here. We 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 had Talia even. But no, Jakar. I didn't even notice that Jakar wasn't here because we were just so busy catching up with all of our friends and finding out what they want that silly old me. I didn't even know if I needed some good eating. But I'm sure if he was uh, here, he would have let me know. Good eating to you. Oh, Jagar, you came here to let me know? Well, good eating to you. 